Open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 13. I'm beginning to read at verse 1. And Abraham went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the south. And Abraham was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar, which he made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Abram, the Bible says, went to Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. And there he called on the name of the Lord. Now may we bow, please, in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the blessed opportunity of once again gathering in this house of worship. We thank you for the songs of Zion that have been a blessing to our hearts tonight. And now we come to study the precious Word of God. And I pray that the Spirit of God will teach us tonight, that He will challenge our hearts, that it might be a time tonight when we shall take a long look at our hearts. Father, may it be a time of soul-searching introspection for me and for every listener to the message. And I pray if there's someone in this auditorium or in our great unseen radio audience who've never been saved, that the Spirit of God tonight would arrest their hearts with Holy Ghost conviction that they might turn to Christ and trust Him and be born again. And we'll thank you for it, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the Bible tells us that Abraham returned to the place where he had the tent at the beginning, back to Bethel. And this, of course, was a turning point in the life of Abram. Abram had been called of God. Abram had responded to God's call. And Abram had been slow in yielding completely to God until God worked in a most unusual way. And then after God had brought him out, there came a time of testing. And Abram did not seek counsel from God. And in the hour of testing, he went his own way rather than God's way. And I want to speak to you tonight for the time we have together on this, this fact, this thought. Now, there are several things about Abram I want you to see tonight in this scripture lesson. First of all, I want you to see a call. Secondly, I want you to see a communion. Thirdly, I want you to see a crisis. Fourthly, I want you to see a conspiracy. 
And fifthly, I want you to see a curse. And then I want you to see a concession. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 12, we see the call of God in the life of Abraham. The Bible says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. Now the first thing I want you to see is that this was a call that required separation and promised God's blessings. He said, now you get out of Ur of the Chaldees. You get out of Mesopotamia. You get out from among the idolaters. And he said, get out from your kindred, your father's house, into a land that I will show thee. Then God goes on to tell Abraham that if he'll do that, he'll make him a great nation. And he says also, he'll bless him and make his name great. And he says, and I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I had a fellow come into my office this week. And, uh, you know, these fellows, they come around, you, you, you can see the whites of their eyes when they're coming, you know, and you can tell something's up. I'd never seen this fellow, he was a total stranger to me. And he come, and I had my office door open, he said, hi. I said, hi. He said, uh, are you busy? I said, no, never busy, got plenty of time. And talk to you? I said, yeah. He said, uh... I see you've been to Scotland. I said, yes, sir, I have. He said, well, how was the meeting? I said, we had a good meeting. He said, you know, he said, uh, I've been doing a lot of research. Uh, you watch your fellas been doing a lot of research. He said, you know, he said, uh, a man's got to have an open mind. And I said, uh, granted. He said, uh, what do you think? Do you think there's any possibility? that America could be the ten lost tribes of Israel? I said, no, for two reasons. I'm a Gentile, and secondly, there is no such thing as any ten lost tribes. God doesn't lose anything. God knows where they are. Why in the name of heaven do I have to worry about where they are? God doesn't lose anything. I hear these preachers, these prophets, they go around talking about the ten lost tribes. And they look all bug-eyed like they're going to give you some kind of a mystery, you know. There are no lost tribes. God doesn't lose any Jews. God knows where they all are. And this fellow, he was going to tell me all about the ten lost tribes. He said, now don't get me wrong. I I'm not of the Armstrong persuasion. Well, I said, no, but you're sure leaning heavy that way. And I said, listen, buddy, I will tell you, for the sake of your time and my time. I said, he said, do you know what the Webster Dictionary says a Jew is? I said, son, I don't care what the Webster Dictionary says. I didn't get saved through the Webster Dictionary. I got saved through the message of the Word of God. He said, buddy, he said, you ought to have your mind open. I said, I've got it open to the Bible. 
And I'm not worried about what the King James or what the Webster Dictionary says a Jew is. I know what the Bible says about it. And God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a head of the posterity that's going to be the cause of many nations being blessed. And I want to serve notice on you tonight as a congregation that one of the reasons why the hand of God in blessing has been upon America is because America has always been kindly disposed to the nation of Israel. This fellow said to me, he said, I just got a little paper in the mail from William Ward Air. I know Dr. Ward Air. I was with him over in Scotland. And he says that we are the sons of Japheth. That's what I agree with him. He said, well, he said, if we're carrying the gospel through the world today, he said, then we must be the ten lost tribes. Well, I said, where'd you get that idea? I said, the Bible says that the custodians of the gospel in this day is the church. And God does not look upon the church as Jew or Gentile, but as the people that are redeemed and are members of a select company. And the great commission is given to us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that don't make us any ten lost tribes. Now I said that'll be reversed in the tribulation. There'll be 144,000 Jews who will be sealed of God to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But right now, the church, and the Bible says the church is comprised of Jew and Gentile who have been born again and have been merged by the miraculous work of the Spirit of God, fused into that one body, and in the reckoning of God have lost their ethnic identification and have become a child of God redeemed by the blood. These guys, I'll tell you something. It's pathetic, but it's amusing. They've always got something new. He tell me about his travel, clear to Phoenix, Arizona, to find out about these ten lost tribes. And while he's traveling to Phoenix, Arizona, the souls are going to hell all around. Now he says, Abraham, you get out. Get out from your kindred, from your father's house, and I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make you a great nation. I'll bless you, and I'll bless them that bless you, and I'll curse them that curse you. And that has held true in every generation. All you need to do is read a history book, you see it for yourself. Now, it was a call, first of all, that required separation and promise the blessings of God. Now, the second thing I want you to see that it was a call that when responded to, it demanded faith. He said, Abraham, now if God had said, now Abraham, come up here in the mountain, I want to show you something. Look yonder across the river, you see that land over there? I'm going to give you that. God didn't say that. God didn't say that at all. He said, Abraham, you get out into a land that I will show thee. You know, every one of us here tonight, when we got saved, we had no idea at all how God was going to lead in our life. 
We had no idea what God had in the future for us. In fact, the night we were saved, we just walked out on naked faith, not knowing what next week or next year held as far as this life was concerned, but simply willing, seeing our need of Christ to step out and trust him as our Savior and put our hand in his hand to lead us the rest of the journey. If I'd have known some of the things going to happen in my life the night I got saved over in Hollingsworth Manor Community Building would have scared me to death. If God had said to me, I'm going to call you to preach, I'd have said, God, I only went to the 10th grade and I haven't got enough sense to preach, so let's call that off. But I didn't know that then. In fact, I've been a little questioned about it ever since. That's why I've been always reluctant to announce a public call to preach. I'm just not so sure about it yet. But I do enjoy preaching. Whether I'm called or not, I enjoy it. And I couldn't do anything else but preach. If I did, I'd die. What I'm saying is, when God led you and I out, when we responded by faith, we had no idea what God was going to do in our life. We could not for one moment foresee the miracles that God was going to work in bringing us to his plan and place and purpose for our lives. That's faith. That's walking out and believing God and saying, God, I don't know what the future holds, but I'm going to trust you. Abraham walked out by faith. He didn't know where he was gone. God didn't hand him any title deed. God didn't show him any castles. God didn't show him any storehouse of wealth. God said, get out, and I'll show you which way to go. That's the way God does things. That's faith. Now, the third thing I want you to see is that this call was a call that was not fully obeyed until natural ties were broken. Now, God called Abraham. He said, Abraham, get out. Get out from your father's house, from your kindred. And Abraham didn't do that. He took his daddy with him. And he settled down in Haran. Lost five years of his life there. Until God intervened and took his daddy out of his life and broke the natural ties. Then he went on to find the will and purpose of God for his life. That's always true in the Christian life. As long as there are family ties and natural ties that hold the place of supremacy in your life over the will of God, you'll never know God's will. Abraham had to have those ties broken before he went on. Then I want you to notice something else. It was a call that demanded abandoning all that a man held dear humanly speaking. He said, Abraham, get out. Get out of your country. That's a big order, especially if Abraham had any patriotism about him. He said, get out of your country and get away from your kinfolks. That's a price to pay. And he said, Abraham, he said, get away from your father's house, from your posterity. Burn your bridges behind you. All that you hold to be humanly dear and dear and to be desired, you're going to have to abandon it to follow me. 
By the way, that's the order we have to have things in. Nothing can ever take precedence over the will and the purpose of God for our life. If we're saved, if that be the case, we'll never know the fullness of God's will for our life. Then I want you to know something else. It was a call that meant testing and proving. You know, I want to tell you something. A faith that you profess to have, a faith that you claim to hold, a faith that you claim to be dear to you, a faith that you claim to be a saving reality in your life, that will not stand the test and the pressure of adversity and trial and temptation, that faith is not worth having. You know, some folks start out to serve God. And they'll serve God as long as everything is rosy. As long as God never hangs a cloud in their sky. As long as a shadow never casts itself upon their pathway. As long as they're not called to go down into a deep valley experience, they'll serve God. But when the pressure comes, they'll quit. That kind of faith is not worth having. I want to say something tonight. An indispensable part of Christian living, an inescapable part of Christian living, is that part of going through the valley. That part of going through times of testing and adversity. That time of being assailed on every side by the enemy. That time when you're called upon to face the darkness with nothing more or nothing less than simple trust in God's promise to bring you through. Let me tell you something. You tell me you're a Christian and you've been saved any length of time and God's never allowed you to be put to the test. There's something wrong. Now, I realize when a person first gets saved, you know one thing, they tell me, and I don't know, but they tell me when a baby is first born, that that baby has a certain kind of immunity in its body to certain diseases. Am I right? You have a, you're a nurse here? Okay. Uh, when a baby's first born, there are, there are certain immunities in its body to certain infant diseases. It's in there already, see. And you know, the same thing is true about a young Christian. When you first get saved, God works in your life in a unique way. Did you ever read in the Old Testament how that the Bible says God did not lead his people through a certain land because they might see war and their heart might faint and they would turn back. You know, when I first got saved 27 years ago, Sodom will tell you everything was rosy for about six weeks. And I thought, man, this honeymoon's never going to end. This is great. I'm going to bounce all the way from here to glory. Never a cloud in the sky. And then the bottom fell out. 
Well, for six weeks, God built a little bit of immunity in me and took care of me, you know, because God knew I needed to get my feet down. You hear me? An indispensable part of growing up and becoming a balanced, useful, productive Christian is that God will put you to the test, the trials. He'll prove you. It's inescapable. Abraham had a call. Now the second thing I want you to see is that he had a communion. Because the Bible says in verse 7, The Lord appeared unto Abram, and said unto, and said unto thy seed will I give this land, and there built he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. Now I notice something here. Anytime God appears to a man in a saving fashion, the first thing that man's going to be looking for is a place where he can meet God frequently. Now Abraham built an altar. The altar in the Bible is always a meeting place between God and his creatures. Meeting on the basis of a sacrifice. Now the altar of the Christian, the sanctuary where worship takes place, is in the heart. Uh, our worship is not dependent upon that wooden rail. You know that. Our worship is not dependent upon certain sacraments and ordinances, you see. We have a sanctuary that's built in the inner man, where the Spirit of God lives, and where he is actively engaged in promoting our worship and our fellowship and our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. We do so on the basis of that sacrifice of Calvary. But, all through the New Testament, God always speaks of the expression of worship in a corporate fashion. He said, let us not forsake the assembling or the churching of ourselves together as the matter of some is. Now somebody said, well, I just don't need to go to church every time the door's open. Well... Maybe you don't, but I pity you. Because you've got a pretty lean brand of Christianity. If you only need about an hour a week to keep you pumped up, brother, you've got a pretty lean brand of Christianity. I don't know how you're made, but I need a whole lot more than that. Tell you right now, you go out there and face that old wicked world every day and face the onslaughts of the enemy and face the opposition and the pressures around I'll tell you right now, God's house is sure a good refuge for me. Where I'd come to God's people and fellowship and sing the praises of God and hear the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. That's just the way I feel about that thing. And oh, Abraham, when God revealed himself to Abraham, the first thing Abraham did was to build an altar because Abraham knew he needed a meeting place with God. Now the Bible says he built an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Now we come to verse 8. And he removed 
from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel. Now the word Bethel means the house of God. That's what the word Bethel means. And the Bible says he removed to a mountain on the east of Bethel and he pitched his tent. Here you have the first mention of the tent in the life of Abraham. Now the tent is always indicative of a pilgrim character. The tent always tells us that a man doesn't have his roots down too deep. He's ready to move whenever it comes moving day. And Abraham here demonstrates for us, first of all, in his life, his pilgrim character. Now the Bible says he moved to the mountain uh, the east, on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. On the one side was Bethel, the house of God. On the other side was Hai, the heap of ruin. That's what it means. And between them was this pilgrim worshiping at an altar of communion. And say that's a picture of just what God wants of you and I. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. He said, I will tell you Christians something, you're standing just where I stood. He said, on the one hand, there's your heavenly home. On the other hand, there's a world under ruin facing the condemnation of a just and a holy God. And as you stand in my place, maintaining your life of communion and service, I'll use you as a channel of blessing to communicate my message. Here, Abraham learned something about communion with God. But now, wait a minute. A crisis came into his life. You'll never get so close to God that there won't be storms. You'll never get so spiritual that there won't be adversity. You'll never get to be such a good Christian that trials won't come your way. None of us as Christians who have walked with God for any period of time can ever for one moment honestly claim we possess some kind of a special and particular immunity from trials. We don't. When you first start out as a Christian in your first love, that's a little different story for a while. But mark it down. When God gets ready to equip you for a greater service, there's going to be some trials. There's going to be some tears. There's going to be some lonely places. There's going to be some folks that will misunderstand you. There'll be folks that will misunderstand you. There'll be folks that will question your motives. There'll be folks that wonder why you stand the way you do. You know, I've learned something a long time ago. You've got to stand on God-given convictions that are found on the Word of God. You know what? Uh, one of my men told me today, said he was talking to a fellow from another church, and he said, he said, well, he said, we don't quite stand like you do. Well, you know, I wouldn't fall out with a fellow if you don't stand like we do. But I've always felt like I ought to stand on the Bible. And sometimes when you stand on the Bible, it seems like it might be a little hard-nosed. You know, all around us are practical situations. 
And I believe we ought to be reasonable people. I believe we ought to be kind people. I believe we ought to be gracious people. I believe we ought to have flowing in our hearts the milk of human kindness. But I am saying that never, never, never do we do anything at the expense of loyalty to the truth that's revealed in the Bible. Now, I believe you can be a fundamentalist without being as mean as the devil. I believe you can be a fundamentalist without being a headhunter. You know, some people run all around church looking for somebody to jump on. Looking behind the bush, see how long somebody's got their hair cut, how short they wear their dress, and uh, whether or not they're doing this or that. Now, I, you don't have to do that. You know, one thing about God, God's got a way of showing up sin every time it's around the camp. It gets out in the open, brother. It just it, Every time it gets out in the open, sooner or later. It'll surface just as sure as you put a cork in the water, it'll surface. You don't have to be a headhunter. God will bring it out every time. I just sit around and listen. It comes out. You don't have to be a spiritual detective running around trying to see who's less spiritual than you are so that you can jump on with both feet. No. You forget that. You're a mighty small Christian, the best kind of Christian you are. You're a selfish little Christian, the best kind of Christian you are. Now, that's not the kind of Christian we're to be. But we are to be loyal to the Word of God at any cost. Loyal. Now, Abraham, having just entered into this blessed communion, had a crisis come into his life. A crisis. Now, the Bible says in verse 9, And Abraham journeyed, going on still toward the south. Now, what do you think about that? Well, the following verses would tell me that Abraham went on his own. See? The following verses would tell me that. I believe Abraham should have stayed right where he was and waited for further direction from the Lord. But the Bible says he journeyed going on still toward the south. Now the Bible says in verse 10, And there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. Now notice something. When the famine overtook Abraham, he was already headed toward Egypt. Uh -huh. He was already headed in that direction. He sure did provide a situation that was conducive to trial, didn't he? Anytime you keep your face pointed toward the world, anytime you keep heading in that direction, you're heading for trouble. Now, God allowed him to go on. You know, I don't know about you, and I'm sure you're the same way I am. There have been a lot of times when I've kept my face in the wrong direction. And I should have stopped and waited on God. You know what God said to me? All right, buddy, go ahead. Go right ahead. And remember, there are some consequences down the road you're going to have to face. But it'll be good for you. Yeah. How many times? How many times? 
I've known I should have stopped. I've known I should have got the right direction. I've known I should have waited on God. But I went on. God said, okay, go ahead. You'll meet your Waterloo right down the road a little bit. And then you wish you'd listen, but it'll do you good. Abraham had his face toward Egypt. And the Bible says that a famine came in the land. Now, Abraham did not ask God one thing about it. He didn't pray. He didn't go to God for counsel. He didn't ask God what to do. He just figured it's full of plenty in Egypt, so I'll just keep heading in that direction. And he went on. Now, the strange thing, but Abraham's made just like we are. You know, we can trust God for our eternal salvation, can't we? We can trust God to do away with our sin, to take our sin, put them under the blood, cast them into the sea of his forgetfulness. We can trust God to put the Spirit of God in our hearts to live. We can trust God to perform the miracle of the new birth. We can trust God to give us eternal life, but we can't trust God to feed us. We can't trust God to put clothes on our back. We can't trust God in the incidental things of life. We're strange creatures. We can say, oh, I believe God's able to save. But then we turn right around, some very small, minute issue comes into our life, and we suffer defeat at its hands. And Abraham, in the time of famine, rather than turning to God and seeking counsel from God, he went on his way to Egypt. You know what happened? Immediately he began to think about himself. That's the way a fellow is. The further he gets away from God, the further more he thinks about himself. He said, now, Sarah, you're a good-looking woman. He said, we get down here in Egypt, he said, and, and he said, they find out that you're my wife, they'll probably kill me and take you. So he said, you tell them that you're my sister. Isn't that a strange thing? Now, listen, he didn't know what might become of his wife when he said that. Don't you know that? He didn't know. He didn't know but what someone else might take his wife and, and might dishonor his wife. He didn't know that. But that just shows you how insensitive a man or a woman can become to sin when they get away from God. You know what happened? God intervened like he always does. And the Bible says that in that conspiracy, when he said to Sarah, he said, you go ahead and lie to save my dirty hide. That's what she did. He drew his loved one, his wife, humanly speaking, his most cherished possession, into a lying conspiracy just to save his own skin, insensitive to sin. You know, I never cease to marvel how far down a Christian can go in sin. You know, there's no doubt about it, the most unhappy person in the world is a backslidden Christian. The most unhappy person in the world is not a drunkard. You know, sometimes we, we try to look out upon sin and we... And we see the awfulness and the hideousness of it. We see how men suffer at the hands of sin, the unsaved. But I'm here to serve notice on you tonight by way of experience that the most unhappy person this side of eternity is the person who has one time knew the joy of God 
and have forfeited it and are out of the will of God and out of the place of God's blessing. That's the most unhappy person in the world. They lose all sense of direction. Lose all sense of value and perception. Look at this man, Abraham. Well, God moved on the scene. God undertook. And the Bible says that Pharaoh called Abraham and said, What is this thou hast done unto me? Why didst not thou tell me that she was thy wife? Why says thou she's my sister? I might have taken her to be wife, to be my wife. Now therefore, behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. Isn't it a sad thing that sometimes heathen people have more principle than professing Christians? Isn't that something? Now, the next thing I want to see is the curse that resulted. The Bible says Abraham went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. Now, I want you to notice something. While Abraham was down in Egypt, a three-fold curse came into his life. I'm saying that to say this. Don't you ever for one moment entertain the thought that because you're a Christian you can play with sin and get by with it. You're not kidding anybody but yourself. Sin is just as dangerous and destructive for a Christian as it is for a sinner. Abraham went down in Egypt. I'm not sure how long he was there, not really. But I know when he come out of there, he wished 10,000 times before God he'd never went. For three reasons. Number one, Abraham had to write off a chapter of his life. There was a period of time that Abraham spent out of the will of God that he could never recall. There were opportunities that Abraham passed up during this time that could never be brought back again. There was a chapter in his life that had to be written off to failure. And I say that's true in the life of any Christian. You get out of the will of God, you get out of the place of God's blessing, you get out of that place where you lose touch with God's power and God's presence and God's glory in your life, and there'll be a period of your life that you'll have to write it off as lost, never to be recalled again. Now, the second thing I want you to see while Abraham was down in Egypt, he got his wife, a servant lady, by the name of Hagar. And he brought her up out of Egypt. And you know what happened? His wife, thinking that she would never bear a child, gave that handmaiden to Abram. She had a child by Abram. And that child, born of that illicit relationship was Ishmael. And who is it that for long centuries now have been a thorn in the side, a heartache to Israel? The sons of Ishmael. 
Who are the nations right now that have a horseshoe ring around the nation of Israel? The sons of Ishmael. Who were the tribes that went against Israel in the, in the Six-Day War? The sons of Ishmael. All through the history of the Word of God, the sin of Abraham that he involved himself in while he was down in Egypt has dogged his steps every step of the journey. You know, there's some sin that you won't get away from. God will forgive it. Don't look at me like that. You know what I'm talking about. Say, what did the prophet say to David? God hath put away thy sin. Nevertheless, the sword shall not leave thy house. You know the history that followed that. God always puts away sin. But that does not mean you and I will always escape the consequence of our sin. And from the day that Abraham walked out of Egypt with his wife Sarah and Lot and all their goods and that young Egyptian maiden Hagar, to this day Abraham has regretted that sojourn down in Egypt. And I don't know how long he was there, but I know when he came out, it's the first mention of him having silver and gold. Apparently, he accumulated some excessive wealth while he was in Egypt. This is the first time now he had substance when he come out of Ur the Chaldees. He had substance, perhaps much substance. But here's the first mention of Abraham having silver and gold. And along with that silver and gold, the increase of his flocks and his herds that became the result of the strife that brought about the division of Lot and the subsequent heartache that happened with Lot and his family. And I believe Abraham felt a sense of responsibility when he took those servants and went down to deliver him. What am I saying? I'm saying, don't you for one moment think that as a Christian, you have a special privilege to pray, play carelessly with sin and get by. You don't have that privilege. Sin will destroy a Christian as well as a sinner. Abraham came out of Egypt and he went back to Bethel. That's the thing we always need to do. The Bible says, Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and gold. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, back to that place of communion, Bethel, between Bethel and Hai. He made a concession. He determined to leave Egypt. To get out of Egypt. 
He took all that he had with him, left nothing behind. He went back to Bethel. He went back to the altar. Back to that second altar that we found over in chapter 12 and verse 8. The place of communion. Ah, let me say tonight, there's no place to compare with the place of communion and unbroken fellowship with God. Back to Bethel. Back to the place of blessing. Back to the place of forgiveness. Back to the place of communion, no matter what it cost. Oh, let's not tarry in Egypt. The consequences are too great. When we come out, we might bring a heartache we'll never rise above. Let's go back to battle. Let us pray.